0: Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Specialist 4 Al Rescone. Rescone is a medic serving with the Recon Platoon, part of Headquarters Company, 1st Battalion, 503rd Infantry Regiment, rolled under the 173rd Airborne Brigade. And the time period we're going to talk about is in March of 1966. And 1966 and the 173rd Airborne Brigade means that we are talking very early in the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Now to back off a little and talk Vietnam at a high level, this is generally a civil war, but it's going to have a lot of international participants, maybe is the way to say that. Vietnam is split between North and South Vietnam with North Vietnam... Uh, having a a communist government and in turn having a lot of support from the communist powers at the time, namely the Soviet Union and China, South Vietnam is not necessarily a historic U.S. ally. But at this time period in history, if somebody's not communist, then they're on our side, especially when they are sharing a border with a communist country. So. The United States and, and Western democracies are backing South Vietnam. Really, the concern is that there's going to be an attempted forced unification, maybe reunification is the right way to say it, of North and South Vietnam, which isn't a crazy thought because there's been this artificial boundary put in place um, after the Second World War that splits this country in two. And you have families living on each side of this boundary. You have people that up until that time period probably shared a lot of ideology, shared a lot of history, shared their culture, shared their language. It's, you know, almost like a ticking time bomb. They're going to want to reunify just like anybody would at some point. Um, But of course, depending on who you ask, some people want the reunification to be led from the North Soviet Union. Some people want the reunification to be led from the South United States. So as it looks like the South Vietnamese government may not be able to repel a kind of a mix. I was going to say a soft incursion because it's not as though the NVA drove North Vietnamese army drove tanks through the DMZ, but there's a lot of subversive efforts going on in South Vietnam. There were North Vietnamese army units in South Vietnam, but there were also a lot of Viet Cong units and supporters. The Viet Cong was the Guerrilla organizations, the insurgent network, if you will, in South Vietnam. Not in most cases, they were um, citizens of South Vietnam. They were people that lived in South Vietnam that supported the North, but it could also be um, North Vietnamese coming down and and posing, maybe, if you will, as South Vietnamese citizens. So there was a concern that really started to catch our attention, our attention, to the United States, in the early to early 60s that maybe the South Vietnam can't hold on and they're gonna need some support. Now in retrospect, I don't know that we understood what level of commitment that was going to require. And you'll see that you'll see that in Vietnam. We're gonna see something very similar take place in Iraq and Afghanistan where and you can't blame the politicians and you can't blame anybody for this. You want to do the job with the least amount of effort possible, as bad as that sounds. So we're going to have upwards of 600,000 troops in Vietnam, but we don't really want to have 600,000 troops in Vietnam. If we can get the job done with 50,000, great. It costs less money. There's fewer American lives at risk. Maybe it happens faster. I, you know, you don't want to overdo it if you don't have to overdo it. The problem we run into is we might've drug it out in Vietnam, because we tried to start with a smaller force. And the same can be said now for Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, what's the right number of troops on the ground to accomplish the objectives there? You know, in Afghanistan, we'd over, was Iraq over 130,000, Afghanistan over 100,000, Vietnam 600,000. Were those the right numbers? Each time it was for like, we had, we hit that peak for like a year. Now, I don't know that it was ever realistic to have 600,000 for the full duration, but what you ended up seeing then is a war that kind of had a bell curve in the number of troops and progress was challenging to come by, maybe is a good way to put it. Now, one of the first units to go into Vietnam, because remember, what's the least amount of effort we have to put forward to accomplish our objectives and to help stand up the South Vietnamese government? Let's send the troops that are closest. Why not? Well, we've got a brigade... In Okinawa, Japan. That brigade is the 173rd Airborne Brigade. And they, the 173rd is a storied unit in American history. They are going to be one of the most notable units in the Vietnam War, partially because they're just going to be there for so long. I mean, they're going to have troops on the ground in Vietnam in 1965. They're going to be the first full U.S. combat brigade. It's weird how this goes, right? It's, when you look at World War II, it's very easy to say these were the first people ashore at, on on Normandy, or or this Marine division landed at Guadalcanal, and they were the first to do so. But in Vietnam, I mean, we had we had CIA on the ground for a long period of time. We had special forces on the ground for a long period of time. Special operations, maybe, is a better way to say that. Just because there were a few branches involved, it wasn't just the army. So it, we also had conventional troops then on the ground. We had pilots on the ground we had aircraft we had some, so the 173rd is 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 the first major combat brigade that's on the ground designated for a combat role they're there to wipe out the north vietnamese units and the viet cong units in south vietnam now at the start of the war what we're doing when we're looking at vietnam at a very very high level is let's wipe out as many of these enemy fighters as possible because it doesn't look like south vietnam can do it and if we reduce how many enemy fighters are in their backyard It will boost them up, give them more of an advantage to hold on for the long term. That makes sense, right? Let's say there are 100,000 enemy soldiers that South Vietnam is having to deal with. If we can kill 50,000, can they take over from that point on? Maybe. There's a number in there, right? There's a number at some point where if we can, you know, kind of beat in our chest, big bad United States can come in and tip the scales back in favor of our ally They can hold on to some point, right? We shouldn't have to kill everybody. There's got to be a tipping point in there. And that's kind of what we're looking for early on. And it's going to be the focus of the war. You're going to hear things like uh, body count used over and over again um, to define success. And part of that is if we can kill enough bad guys, then the good guys have a better chance of winning. Bad guys being North Vietnam, good guys being South Vietnam in this lens of the United States in the 1960s and 70s. Now in nineteen sixty six there's going to be so there's a lot of operations that go on throughout Vietnam but one of the challenges that we have in this conflict and we're seeing it again now in Iraq and Afghanistan from my perspective is that you don't have a lot of these fixed peace battles and even the Korean War you can pretty easily track the movement north to south south to north and and then the stalemate along the along the uh, um along the u n I'm going to say 53rd parallel, I'm sure I got that wrong, 48th parallel, maybe. Anyways, the the movement of UN forces and North Korean Chinese forces back and forth across the peninsula, you can even track that pretty easily. But in Vietnam, we just kind of bounce around because we're not taking territory, we're in South Vietnam, and South Vietnam is our ally. That's who we're there to protect. So it's not as though we're taking territory, it's securing it. But that means that you can't put on a map this real clear image of moving from south to north or east to west or, or even marking a village secure because maybe you move through it and there's no enemy forces, but they come back the next day. So you have to do it again the next day. How does that fall in? How do you write that history? What happens if that, if that little village gets fought over 27 times in a year? How do you write that history? It's complicated. It's hard to track. And what we end up seeing are a lot of operations that sound similar in a lot of ways. They're similar in that the goal is search and destroy, kind of a, a tactic that was heavily used in Vietnam. Go out, find the enemy, destroy them. You're going to see a lot of battles that they they just all sound very similar. There's that tactic involved in search and destroy. You're going to see body counts that maybe don't quite add up. They, across the board during the Vietnam War, um, There's a lot of guessing going on, unfortunately. So the, you'll see some numbers that don't quite compute. Um, and then we're going to do it again, is kind of the big thing. So you're going to see, you know, Operation A takes place and there's these big fights and Americans are killed. And a lot of North Vietnamese and Viet Cong are killed and some civilians are killed. And then And then that's operation A. And then two weeks later, we launch operation B. And it's the same thing, just in a different area. So it's a challenging history to tell because of that. It's not linear, maybe is a good way to say it. But in March of 1966, the United States is going to kick something off called Operation Silver City. And to be fair, it sounds very similar to a lot of these other operations. The United States is going to go out with a couple units Two brigades, generally, 1st Brigade of the 1st Infantry Division and the 173rd Airborne Brigade are going to move into an area known as War Zone D, War Zone D Delta in South Vietnam, which is a known enemy hotspot. And they're going to search for and attempt to destroy as many enemy forces as possible. Now, Rescona and his men are moving through this operation that began on the 7th, when on the 15th of March, they take up a position and take some mortars overnight. Now they've been, this operation has been going on for about a week and they're starting to come across a sizable number of enemy weapons caches. And it's concerning to a degree, right? It's like you stumble into something and say, there's way too many weapons here for the number of soldiers we're finding. What is this? Well, what this is, is a pretty sizable enemy force is waiting to attack. And on 16 March, 1966, they open up. Now, Rescone's unit is not his platoon. He's in the recon platoon is not the first one to take the enemy fire. Their sister battalion is, but Rescone and his guys get the call to go reinforce and help relieve the pressure from their sister battalion. As they're moving to that location, they come into enemy contact with a much larger enemy force than the platoon size that they are at least. And the, and when you look back at accounts of this battle, The term that's used over and over again is that the ground was shaking. And that should give some idea of the amount of bullets hitting the ground, flying overhead, mortars impacting, grenades going off, RPGs detonating in every which way. The ground is shaking. And you don't want to be above ground. Another common um, sentiment from this battle is that where you dropped when the firing started is where you stayed. That's how intense the enemy fire was when they opened up. Now, right away, some of the point men are hit, killed, wounded, and they're in a road. As, as much as you can have a road through some kind of a, a rural area, kind of a, a maybe a trail is a better way to say it. And Rascone sees one of these guys down. He's a bigger guy, machine gunner. We generally have guys that are a little bigger carrying the machine guns because of the added weight they have to carry. He sees this guy down. Rascone moves up towards the front and gets ready to go treat him. But there's a problem. He's out in the open. And after a couple attempts to do that, the platoon sergeant standing up there and says, hey, wait for suppressive fire. You're never going to make it. You're just going to get cut down You're going to get him. Something doesn't click, and the medic, Rascone, gets up and runs out there to start treating the wounded, start treating this, this downed soldier. Now, as he's doing it, he's seeing that the soldier's still getting hit. Some, something's happening. So he rolls over and puts his body between the wounded machine gunner and the enemy machine guns protecting this soldier from any further damage by using his body as a shield. In this process he's wounded again I believe shot in the hip even but at the very least wounded one or two times while he's treating this soldier then drags this soldier out of the kill zone back to friendly lines for treatment. As the battle's continuing, at one point a one of the machine gunners comments that they're running low on ammunition. so Rescoe again wounded, Right away, remember, realizes that there are, um, that that machine gunner that he rescued originally had his equipment sitting out there. So Rascone's thinking about that and gets hit by more shrapnel. I think it was a grenade at this point, and it severely wounds him, uh, damaging his face. I think from his about his ear down to his chin, just a nasty wound, kind of regains focus and decides he's going to go out there into this kill zone and pick up this machine gun and spare barrels and ammunition. Now, the enemy at this point are 15, 20 yards away. I mean, they're right on top of this trail. Rascone can hear them talking. But he moves out, recovers the machine gun, and hands it off to another man to kind of help keep his unit in the fight. The machine gun is going to be what keeps his guys alive in a deadly engagement like this. After he does this, he sees one of his guys... shot and falls. And at that moment, he also sees enemy grenades start to land around this man. So Rascone moves over quickly and throws his body on top of this soldier just as the grenades detonate. So what happens there? Rascone absorbs the blast of these grenades, wounds him even more, but saves the life of the soldier that he jumped on. That's crazy to do that one time, but he's going to do it again before the end of the battle. Once more, as he's getting ready to treat a wounded soldier, enemy grenades start coming in. And for, for what it's worth, that talks about how close range this fight is. A fight can be deadly at 300 yards, but you can't throw grenades 300 yards. Realistically, you're inside of 40 yards when there's grenades landing all around. And what's terrifying is you don't know in a battle like this, in the thick jungle, and the grasses, you don't know where they're coming from. You just maybe hear something hit next to you. And that's the scenario that Rasko and his men are in. But when that grenade lands next to him and he has mere seconds, Rascone rolls again on top of a wounded soldier and absorbs the blast of that grenade, again saving that man's life, and again taking shrapnel in the process. Miraculously, he's still alive. And after a few hours, as enemy contact starts to break, Rascone is able to help. He's, first off, he's never stopped treating wounded, but he's able to help with the evacuation of these soldiers. He refuses treatment until all of his men are treated and evacuated. Eventually, he's, he's on the verge of passing out. I mean, we're talking about, I believe it was shot in the hip and then four different grenade blasts leaving shrapnel all over his body. Eventually, he is placed on the medevac bird and treated and and taken to a hospital where he recovers. He survives the war. Now, he's put in for the Medal of Honor, which sounds about right. Talk about, I mean, saving multiple lives, risking his own life, going above and beyond. Absolutely. Meets the criteria for the Medal of Honor. But the paperwork is lost or just doesn't get submitted. Something weird happens. Now, there are times in history where we can look at something and say, we know why that didn't happen, specifically in the world in world in the World War II. In World War II, we've had cases where guys were deliberately not recommended because of race, ethnicity, or, or whatever it might be. And a lot of times that's, or in some cases, I guess I should say it's rectified later on. It sounds a little more vague at this point with Rascone. In fact, it um, it sounds more like just the army and the government, things get lost. He is awarded the Silver Star. But his buddies that he served with at a reunion in 1985 learned that he didn't receive the Medal of Honor, and some of them maybe thought that he had. And they start a campaign to push. And they push and they push and they push until on February 8th, 2000, President Clinton awards now, Major Rescone in the Army Reserves, Major Al Rescone, the Medal of Honor for saving lives and sacrificing his body to shield wounded soldiers on the battlefield in Vietnam in 1966. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.